how's uh how's writing you've been writing i have i have been writing um i hate all of it it's all terrible <laughs> So here's my here's my system. Yeah. Uh, have you been waking up on time? Is your system still working? I have done it successfully all but once. Okay, that's pretty good. Uh, a couple of days ago, I got four hours of sleep, and my alarm went off, and I said I'm giving myself another hour <laughs> as like a very intentional thing, and I just yeah. gave myself another hour, and okay. then I got up. You still reading in the morning? Is that what you're doing with your time, or reading? Giving myself time to make a longer breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, making some arepas. Making some arepas. I made bannock bread for my yeah. breakfast this morning because bannock been, bread's great. I've been making that a couple times. Yeah. Um, but in in writing as well, I've been okay, doing that as cool. well. Yeah. So, I already wrote a couple screenplays. That's great. I'm yeah. happy for you. Like There's, honestly, if you had, I would be happy <laughs> because I don't view it as a competition. Because <laughs> I'm not one of those people who's like, <laughs> they're very good. Yeah, good. I'd love to read them. Uh, so I use so when I was in undergrad, when I was starting to become a playwright, mm-hmm. uh, we read a play by a woman whose name I do not remember, but my playwright professor had known her, mm-hmm. um, and actually he edited the anthology that we were reading from for his playwriting class, uh, and he had asked to put her play in this, and, and she she's fairly well known and had a lot of stuff produced. Um, and he talked about something that she does, which is she has a typewriter. She may not have a typewriter anymore, but at the time she had a typewriter, mm-hmm. and on it was taped a little piece of paper that said two pages. Okay. And her basically like the deal she made with herself was her to to get up to be able to eat food, to do anything else, she had to write two pages a day. Like that was her payment for being able to do anything else. Before she could do anything else? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, And so she would write two pages a day. Yeah, at least. Yeah, Yeah. although if you read her plays, it reads like a lot of them read like they were written two pages at a time, (laughs) which is not a bad thing. She's a a very like out there sort of playwright. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you, that that's transparent, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. But I think she's okay with that with in her writing, right? Um, and so I'm like, I can, I can do that. Like in grad, in undergrad, I was like, I can do that. I can do two pages a day, and I did for about six months. Um, and then my playwright professor, when I was in grad school, or not long after, uh, he wrote a, on his blog, which he hasn't updated in six years. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote like he was feeling like a play wrote instead of a playwright, like he hadn't. <laughs> been writing a lot lately uh-huh. and he was a, he was a playwright he's also a professor and all this other stuff but like that's what he did and so he started doing the two pages a day thing again yeah and so that's what i've been doing so i get up uh, my alarm goes off at six and i'm not in a hurry to get out of bed because i don't have to leave the till like 8 30 to get to work uh-huh. uh so my alarm goes off at six you know i'll snooze it once or twice i'll get up you know do my morning stuff read twitter that sort of stuff but right. then before anything else i go sit down on my computer and I write two pages. Hmm. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Uh, and then I do the rest of the thing. I haven't been giving myself the weekend off. That's sort of been my my agreement with myself. Right. Like if I'm not working, I'm not doing anything else, I'll get up and take my time. I, I do that too. If it's a day yeah. off from work, I don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, cause I, on those days I usually set my alarm for a little bit later anyway, yeah. instead of six, it's seven or eight or, mm-hmm. um, and I don't worry about getting out of bed and yeah. right away. So, um, but yeah, no, I've been getting up and writing two script pages a day before you do anything else. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, uh, I, it's usually after a shower. So like I shower okay. first, but yeah. 
that's the interesting part to me is like the i hadn't thought of it as like like payments in order to do other things with your mm-hmm. day you got to write first yeah because for me um i've been fairly success- successful in my goal so far like i the alarm in the bathroom thing seems to be the Working. actual solution yeah. it works yeah. i get out of my bed and then i get Turn right on into the shower, shower. <laughs> um but like i shower i eat breakfast i get dressed uh-huh. um like i like i do i do everything i want to do yeah and then the last thing i do before i leave for work is i sit down with my notebook and i i write one page of my notebook okay so each day i have at, at least one page so yeah sometimes i go a little bit more um but usually i'm like stretching a little bit just mm-hmm. to like fill the one page yeah but it's nice and like it was cool I, a couple of days ago i look back like i opened my notebook and i flipped a couple of pages to get to the most recent one and i was like oh i gotta flip through some pages to get yeah. to the next empty one i was like i've written like pages worth of stuff mm-hmm. like just by just st- by doing it slowly yeah. starting a habit i have like a thing like there's yeah enough to flip through it's a, <laughs> yeah it was, it was it was a cool feeling and it's nothing i'm just like like I sit down and it's kind of like whatever was on my mind like the mm-hmm. night before or whatever I wake up mm-hmm. and like whatever kind of thing is on my mind as I yeah. wake up that day. I just like put that down and then let my brain go and I'm just recording. I'm just recording thoughts. Yeah. So more of a free writing. Right. I'm yeah. not I'm not creating like a thing like yeah. you're, like you're playwriting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that, that's, that describes the structure of what I'm writing more than the content. Okay. Uh, cause a lot of what I'm writing right now doesn't have, and I've been writing about this, doesn't have a form yet. It doesn't have a goal or a structure to it. Okay. Um, which is how I did a lot of my playwriting as a, as a youth, as if I'm not particularly <laughs> young right now. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, back in the day I, I would do a lot of writing from zero. So I would sit down and I would start writing and I'd figure out what it is as I was writing it. Okay. Um, but I've been doing that, um, which has been successful and not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been talking to myself a lot, like through the, the characters. Right. Um, you know, I am on stage having dialogue with these other characters in the right. play that's happening. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but I also do standalone scenes. Like if I have something, I was like, I can make this into a scene. Like I could do something with this. I will write that right uh and some days it's things that are interesting uh one day it was just literally a dramatization of one of my favorite jokes <laughs> nice um i was just like i could make that into a, like a little short play and so i did and so i wrote i did it i think over a couple days but i wrote a couple pages at a time nice and wrote a little like scene yeah as as sort of an exercise of like okay how would i take this story that exists and make it a play Right. Um, and sort of those, and so I'm looking for those sorts of exercises almost of getting the structure back into my brain of like the structure of playwriting. Right. And so, like, okay, how would I write this scene? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't care if it's, you know, plagiaristic or whatever, because it's more about the practice than anything I'm trying to publish. Right. Uh, so that's really the thing. Yeah. You're not like working on something. Yeah. I'm not creating an art yet. Right. But I am I am writing and getting those muscles flexed and trying to see what I can do with that. Right. Um, and in the hopes of that, like, as I get those muscles back into play and as I get that brain pattern rebuilt, that I start thinking about, like, okay, what would be a play I'd want to write? Like, what is a thing I would want to dramatize and create eventually down the line? Right. Like, what is that going to look like? And then you'd have the 
you'd have the practice and to be able to sit down and say, I'm going to start working on this now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it wouldn't feel so abrupt and sudden Mm -hmm. and and difficult. Well, because I look back, I have all of my old writing that I did in undergrad and grad school. Mm -hmm. I've saved it all and just transferred it from computer to computer. Right. And when I go back and look at that, I see a lot of ideas. Like I had a bunch of ideas back then. Now, Mm -hmm. mind you, it was part of my job was to come up with plays and write them. So that was really something I don't have as much right now. Like I'm struggling with the ideas side of it. Mm. So I'm trying to get into the, the just the writing of it. Right. Cause I, cause there, there are plays that are, you know, unfinished, but I was like, Oh, I know what I wanted to do with this. Like I know what the structure of this was <clears throat> at one point in time. And that's not something I want to go back and work on. Like I look at it and go, eh, eh, no thanks. Right. But I remember having that sort of thing and I've, I've read about writing. I know what people talk about writing, which is you can't wait for inspiration to strike. You have to go actively out and work at it. Right. And so that's kind of what I'm at. I'm at the workhorse stage. Yeah, that two pages a day thing is something I've, is advice I've heard from a lot of people who write yeah. that I, I follow on the internet. It's just do it. Like, yeah. I, I follow this uh, this author, um, Rachel Held Evans, who's writing mm-hmm. a book right now. And she's just like, that's sometimes she's like, I get up and I don't know what to do and I don't know what to write. And I just sit down at my computer and I force myself to like push keys. Yeah. And even if I throw it all away at the end of the day and none of it makes it into the book, like it's, I still had to do it. Yeah. Like you still just have to do it. Yeah. Because it's almost as if like there's whatever you're going to end up writing is already in there somewhere. And <laughs> you like, got to get through everything else. Like whether there's like, you can have a bunch of bad stuff and then a little bit of good stuff. And then maybe a lot of good stuff and bad, like mm-hmm. whatever is in there, it's all in order and it just has to come out. So even if the bad, like you can't skip over the bad stuff, yeah. like you just have to get it out and then some of it will be good and some of it will be bad. Yeah. And you hopefully can identify the good stuff. That's what editing's it. for. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. why writers aren't editors. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so I'm definitely in that stage, which I'm okay with. Like this morning, I went on to reddit.com slash r slash writing prompts. Because mm. like, I don't know what to write about. And so I just picked one from there and I wrote two pages. Nice. There's a, mm. uh, there's a Tumblr that's yeah. popular for writing prompts. And I see it mostly because I, I only follow like dumb chip post tumblers. Uh-huh. And oftentimes they're turned into memes. Yeah. Uh, but it, like, it's genuinely interesting writing prompts. Yeah. It's these just wild, interesting. Yeah. And so it was just like, there's starters. a thing, there's an idea. I'm gonna write it. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna say, okay, how would I do that? What does that look like? And it's also interesting doing it like for me for the writing prompts on Reddit because they're like story and novel writing prompts. Right. And so taking that idea and saying, okay, how would I translate that to the stage? Mm-hmm. What does that look like on stage? Right. What is that? So when you're writing, you're writing, I've, I don't know much about playwriting yeah. at all, but like you're writing dialogue and stage direction. Yes. While you're writing. Okay. Mostly dialogue. Um, so, I mean, this, this is a whole, whole big history of like, do stage directions matter um, in plays? Y- yes. Yes is a good answer. <laughs> yes, question mark is a really good answer. <laughs> uh, so, for example, Shakespeare has almost zero stage direction. Like, there's not like, okay, you know, he sits on the throne, he holds the skull, these sorts of things that exist within when someone's performing Shakespeare. There's almost none of that. There's enter, exit, almost everything. Sure. Although my favorite Shakespearean 
stage description, stage actions is exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> A great great did we already know the bear was there uh i don't know the context of that because i haven't read that play in so long oh. i just really like the idea of like surprise bear <laughs> like you just have two actors on stage talking to each other and then one of them has to leave and then all of a sudden the bear is chasing them and you... i suspect we knew the bear was there but it's been a while since i've read it um but shakespeare also we don't have the original text of shakespeare's plays we don't have what shakespeare wrote we have what was published, oh. which is a very different thing. Um, speaking of Miami, you mentioned the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, Miami University, where I went to, went to grad school, had a full set of folios, which is really a big deal. Which is? So the folios and the quartos were the published versions of Shakespeare's work. Okay. That's what we have. Like the original publications? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were folios and quartos, and those were those were binding methods. Okay, um, and yeah, Miami had a full full first folio set. Hmm. Um, I didn't even get to look at them. Really? <laughs> no. Too protected. Yeah. Wow. Um, now my playwriting professor did get to look at them, and he was a Shakespearean scholar, and so we got to go in and touch them with wow. fancy gloves. Right. Yeah. And he actually found something in one of them that was important, like to his work, like a one line thing. And one of it's, it's different in the first version than it is in a later reprinted version, huh. like a difference from the quarto to the folio or, or right. Cause there's depending on the play, there's three or four different versions of them that we have from that time period. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work going into, okay, what was an editor's choice? What was in the original text? Cause we don't have, we don't have Shakespeare's pen on paper. Right. Uh, which, I mean, is why people think, like, maybe Shakespeare wasn't real. Maybe it was Bacon, but it wasn't Bacon. Or anybody else. It wasn't anyone. It was Shakespeare. It was a real person named William Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. And he wrote the plays. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that that always sounded a little conspiracy theory. Yeah, the people who think it wasn't Shakespeare have not actually looked into, like, anything about Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a really good book called Shakespeare, A Documentary Life. Um where like the author of the book is like using the documents we have to show you everything we know about Shakespeare. Cool. And it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. That was, that was the guy. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Done. It's interesting that like Shakespeare wasn't that long ago. Was it 1500s, 1600s? Uh, late 1500s, early 1600s. Surprising that we don't have originals. Uh, I, I, so it's important to know that Shakespeare wasn't like super important at the time. Right. So it wasn't like, we got to save this. Yeah. It was just some dude, right? He was, stuff. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he worked for the Queen's men and the King's men eventually, uh -huh. which were the same troop, depending on who was alive at the time. Cause he went from a queen to a King. Right. Right. Um, and like he performed at court and things like that. So it was important, but a lot of people did that. So it wasn't just Shakespeare, uh, that did that. They didn't know he was going to become the most, the overwhelmingly most famous playwright ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's this argument that like, you know, Shakespeare has almost zero stage direction, which is the point I was originally making. Mm -hmm. uh, and later playwrights, uh, for example, uh, here's an example. Uh, Eugene O'Neill is a 20th century playwright, um, wrote in the early 1900s, super racist. Uh, <laughs> just, I just throw that out there to let people know that I know. <laughs> um, not recommended well his plays are important 
historically, just we racist. don't need to we don't need to perform them anymore. Sure. Well, maybe the hairy ape we can perform that one, which is not about a black guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounds like it's probably the worst one. Uh, that one's probably okay. It's been a while since I've read it. <laughs> but like uh, Emperor Jones, which is a, a, a super racist play. It's like, we don't need to do that anymore. It's good. Cool. Just leave it. Um, but Amy was referencing it for some of her work. And so I was reading it last night, actually. And like the first page of the script is stage direction. The whole first page. Whole first page. Hmm. Um, and other playwrights wrote like that. And it's in this really weird space because... When you agree to perform a play, you know, you get the rights to it by the rights holder if it's still in copyright, which most plays that are performed today are. You agree to perform it as is. Make no changes, make no cuts, make no additions. Hmm. Um, so you have to say all of the words exactly as they are. But stage directions in, exist in a much grayer space. Right. Sometimes it's okay to change stage directions. Sometimes it's not. But that line is very fuzzy or can can the bodies on stage only do exactly what is directed in the text of the play yeah and that's and that's a really interesting argument that i don't have a strong answer to um some people are very much one way or some of the very much the other way uh, but when i was in school the people i was around were very much in the who cares about stage directions um, and the argument for that is in a lot of cases Stage directions don't necessarily come from the playwright. Um, a lot of cases, stage directions are reproduced from the original production. So in the original production, Jeffrey sits on the chair after this line. So we wrote Jeffrey sits on the chair after this line. <laughs> so the argument for no stage directions don't matter is... Well, it's not part of the text. It's it's an option. It's a it's an indicator, but we don't have to necessarily do it. And so my answer to that when I was playwriting in college, a lot of people who didn't care about stage directions was I wrote as few stage directions as I could. And just, that's just enough like just what is essential. Yeah, like a lot of it would be like the setting. Like this is where we are. Right. Uh and like that was it. Like I don't care if there's chairs on stage or not. I don't like I would describe like a classroom and I would say, this is a classroom, figure it out. And then the, when it's actually being produced, the people producing it just create whatever classroom they feel like creating. Yeah. yeah. And have a lot more freedom there. And that's this, that's sort of my stubborn, but like gracious way of dealing with it yeah. is like, I write the dialogue. Y'all take care of the rest. Hmm. Unless something is really important and I put it in. Um, and then, as again, I was, I was, there were not a lot of playwrights in my undergrad school, a lot of directors, a lot of actors, mm -hmm. very few playwrights. Because <laughs> that's the hard one, right? No, it's because it's not the flashy one. Sure. People want to direct, people want to be actors, people want to design. Mm. Nobody sees the playwright, <laughs> nobody cares what they do. But that's, that's part of what you like about it, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get to sit in a desk somewhere and yeah. toil. But um, so the, the trick, such as it is, is if there's something really important that needs to be done, make it part of the dialogue. <laughs> they got to okay. say your words. What? So like what? Why are you standing on that chair? Like is a super, <laughs> you know, 
super blatant example. Okay. But okay. Yeah. That make makes it, sense. Make it, if it is indispensable, make it indispensable. Right. Hmm. Get down from there. That's, you know, you have to say that if you're producing a play, they're sitting on the floor and they say, get down from there. That makes a lot less sense. They have to work harder to justify that. Right. As opposed to, I wrote, he climbs on the chair and then the person says, get down from there. And it makes more sense since they go with the easier choice. It's, um, huh. That's interesting. It's like a classic screenwriting advice that I've heard is, um, show don't tell. Sure. Right. That's good advice. (laughs) Right. Like if you just, if you're only using dialogue to explain Mm -hmm. what's going on in Mm -hmm. the story, it's, it's boring and it's not as yeah. it's not as compelling to watch as ac- things happening on screen Absolutely. that also that communicate the story to you um and that's kind of like a forced show don't tell yeah like you're not giving them the option like b- by it being in their words by mm-hmm. it being in the tell you have to create something in the show yeah yeah that's fascinating uh so yeah that's that's my my trick and my mindset when i'm dealing with writing stage directions and as- so i write very little in the way of stage directions yeah um, but if I do write them, they are important, hmm. which is a, a a quirk of my chosen profession and how I choose to write plays. Yeah. Uh, I knew a playwright um, at Tech who um, would put like photographs in her script. Really? Yeah. And now she was, let's say she was more avant-garde than I am, um, although I actually admired a lot of her work. I didn't like her plays but i admired her style sure if that makes sense yeah um i think her her plays were juvenile and not like in a for kids sort of way but just like aha uh-huh, boobs and weed sort of way yeah <laughs> boobs and weed <laughs> <laughs> just funny <laughs> um <laughs> uh but one of her best works one of the works that i really did enjoy of hers was um like there was an opening monologue which was stage direction and it specifically said like i don't know if this should be read aloud but i think maybe it should be Hmm. like as part of the stage direction and so you're watching the play and seeing someone say these words and then she's like i've added a picture here to emphasize my point and like the way they dealt with that on stage was they had someone bring out a, you know, giant poster sized version of that picture. <laughs> but literally that was just in the play, like in the play script, which I saw later, there was that photograph. Right. Just in the, in, in line the text in the document. of the play. Yeah. Um, which is really fascinating. And I, and that's something, cause again, I'm also a dramaturg. I'm, I like playing with the format in that way a lot. Yeah. Uh, that's something that's really neat to me. I don't, um, I don't go, uh, watch plays yeah. ever, but that would be a very bizarre experience to watch someone carry a big, like oh, yeah. poster Absolutely. board out onto stage yeah. and be like, look at this photo. It was in the script. Yeah. <laughs> now you have to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, we think we're supposed to show this to you. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it was fascinating. I loved that play. And honestly, I think it was the best work of hers that I saw. Her, her later stuff made me mad. So, um, although I did yeah, another story for <laughs> uh, it was a, it was a good play yeah. uh, and it was a good moment um, and Susan Laurie Parks is a playwright I really respect and really like and she does something really fascinating in her scripts which is that she will so 
you know roughly what a script looks like. Character name, dialogue. Character name, dialogue. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, she will have in her script, she writes in a very particular way, and she actually has like introductions, like this is how I'm writing this play. Like this is what this looks like. This is the, the format I have chosen to use. Mm-hmm. But she will have sections of her play that are, you know, character line, character name line, character name dialogue. And then she'll have portions that are just character name, character name, character name, character name. Okay. Um, and she talks about like, this is a place for the characters to exist. So things are happening stuff. There's, there's a moment on stage, but not with dialogue. And not necessarily with stage direction. She does very little stage direction. She has some, and it's important when she does. But it's just like Jeff, Mikey, Jeff, Mikey. It's not like Jeff start like steps back two feet because he's startled. Yeah, it's 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 the characters existing, and then the actors, the director and the actors get to interpret that with whatever behaviors they want. Yeah, and sometimes it's like one or two. Sometimes it's like it's like a bunch of them at a lot and I don't really well there's a lot of this here hmm what does that mean how do we deal with that but they're not they're not even speaking lines during no. that time that's really interesting yeah and I love I love among other things I love that about her work I like it it's cool to me to see and I've how, stolen that I should say like I, I steal that sometimes yeah <laughs> that doesn't count as like plagiarism no yeah um it's cool to me to see something like the format of a screenplay, mm-hmm. which seems so limiting, mm-hmm. like name, dialogue, name, dialogue, yeah. brackets for a direction, name, di- like, but to have it played with in that way where mm-hmm. you can. I love it. You you figure out, like, you, you're bending these limits to do more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do more with it. Like yeah. to, you know, even maybe like flat out breaking the limits by like putting a photograph yeah. in the document yeah. or, you know, dialogueless mm-hmm. character moments. But it's cool to, it's cool to see that happen. So tell me about the formats of your writing. So my writing is more, much more, uh, I guess you would call it journaling mm-hmm. um, than yours, which is like, your playwriting yeah as much as you're not like working on a play your playwriting um and i'm not i'm not journaling or diarying almost sounds like diarrhea um (laughs) (laughs) um it's not like here's what i did today like i woke up and then i went to work and work was fine and then i came home and made like Uh it's not that it's um it's like this is what's on my mind at the moment, and I'm just gonna let my mind dump onto a piece of, onto a piece of paper sure. for a page, um, which is a good. It's been a really good practice for me because it's it's just building the habit of turning thoughts into words in mm-hmm. a in a way that is completely safe. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about it being on the internet, even though no one has ever read my writing on the internet. I have. I don't have to worry i don't i don't have the opportunity to be worried about someone reading it on the internet Mm -hmm. it's just going in a book and then that book sits on a shelf and it's fine yeah um but for example uh 
this morning, uh, woke up, did my thing, uh, and I give myself like 20 minutes or so mm-hmm. uh, of writing time, usually while I'm like eating breakfast. I sit down in my notebook and in my, in my pen, and I have like a page, and I set aside a page per day, and... Uh, like I, this morning I woke up and the thing that was on my mind was the, uh, the fact that I went to church yesterday Mm -hmm. and, um, I went to a church that I visited once before a couple weeks ago. And this is like a thing for me. Cause like I used to go to church a lot and I don't anymore and I want to go back. I want to like get back into it and Mm -hmm. like have a church community in my life and yada yada. So this has been on my mind. And so I sit down and I think like literally like I started by writing like I went to church yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was weird, <laughs> and but then like just letting the thoughts and feelings that I had about what my experience was like going to church yesterday, yeah, put themselves onto paper, and it's a way to put thoughts in order and then to actually figure out what they are. Because like I went to church and I have a bunch of feelings, but I don't like sit down and think about how i feel you don't feel your feelings well well, i feel them i just don't feel them in words yeah right and so this is a way to actually like put words and definitions to them um which is really helpful and now i feel like i actually like after writing a page Mm -hmm. in a moleskin notebook about what church was like i feel like i understand my reaction to my experience cool better than i did before it's interesting though because as much as that is like the least formatted kind of writing possible, it's just mm-hmm. like, like I'm literally like uh, a couple of days ago, like I wrote about I was like I woke up and I was thinking about, um, like, like habit building because I'm trying to like build this habit of waking up early, and so I like I'm, I'm thinking and writing about habit building and habit breaking and good habits and bad habits in my life, and. Like, I remember a lot of that was like, literally like, like I'm asking myself questions in my head. So I'm writing down questions. It's like, what are my good habits? And then like listing like good habits. What are my bad habits and listing bad habits and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a very like, it's a very like internal monologue or internal dialogue with myself on paper. Um, but <laughs> it's weird because uh, like I contrast this with, um, with what Ellen does, because a lot of this was inspired by Ellen, because she's a very, very avid journaler. Mm-hmm. She carries like five notebooks around with her in her backpack <laughs> at, a, at any given time, which that I don't. Seems like a lot of notebooks. I don't understand. She's also a compulsive notebook buyer. I've never been one of those. No, I want one notebook at a time. It's enough notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, but she buys uh, unruled notebook paper. Cause her, and when she takes notes and I've, I've seen what she does, it's totally free form and it's just like words going in directions filled and there's like little drawings and doodles mixed in with it. And they're don't take this the wrong way. Is she a manic, pic, manic pixie dream girl? <laughs> uh, there might be a little bit of that. <laughs> no, I don't like that as much. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure it's not intentional. No. Um, but it like just completely free form. And like, it's interesting to contrast that with me. Uh, I buy notebooks that are graph papered. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
not because I'm like graphing things or even like <laughs> diagramming stuff all that much. I just like graph paper and I and I definitely need lines to make words go straight because <laughs> I'm very bad at writing. Like the act, the physical act of writing, I'm bad at. But you like, get some isometric graph paper. Moleskin doesn't make those. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to buy Moleskin. You can buy others. Yeah, it's available. Um, but my uh. Like my page is set up in a very like structured way. Like I put like the the date in a specific format on top and it's underlined the same way every time. And like I'm like I have a set margin, like I'm using the graph paper to like give myself a set margin. And it's written like just in prose and sentences and mm-hmm. like paragraphs and there's one dead space between each paragraph. And okay. it's just it's very bland and boring and it's following deliberate yeah very deliberate it's just words and they're written in order and there's grammar and blah 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 Mm -hmm. as opposed to just like dumping a mixture of words and drawings loosely (laughs) on an unruled piece of paper and you like you're doing you're doing yours on a computer yes which makes sense for the playwriting a little bit i mean i've definitely done freehand playwriting like on paper but that sounds just like genuinely impractical it's not great because if i was if i was uh doing playwriting i would like speaking of text expander like i mentioned a while ago like that would be a great way to do it you just have text like you need to have jeff have dialogue you like you know you have your little snippet for your jeff dialogue in it so I actually know uh, in there just right, and there's also I know like, a guy who did that. Like that's a, how he wrote plays. There's also specific apps for doing yeah those kinds of. Writing. Um, so it's it's funny because he would write those, he would write plays in that way. He he used a text editor, um, where he would have that it was it looked almost like code. Like and you know you've seen pe- I don't know if you've seen people coding or not, but mm-hmm. like when if you're using certain code editors or text editors, the you get like different parts of text auto color to different things and stuff like that. And you've got certain, you know, identifiers before them, they turn different colors and stuff right. like that. He worked in an environment like that. Fascinating. Um, where he would, he would do, I'm going to say ampersand J for Jeff. And all he would do is ampersand J and then write dialogue. Uh, and, and the, the thing that he was using, the program he was using would translate that into a play script format when he was done. Yeah. Uh, which is really interesting. I've, I'd I'd love to like see what it was that he used. Like I'd I'd be interested to see what it is, especially since I've been writing code recently, as I've been learning Python. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have always written directly into PlayScript format. Like I have I have almost always like it's funny you're talking about like breaking the way structures of plays works, but I've almost always like written it directly into that and formatted it as I went. And you're doing that like character by character? Yes. Interesting. And that's that's part of the rhythm of it for me, of like typing out a character's name every time they talk hmm. and the whole thing. Do you feel like you'd be uh, freer creatively if that wasn't, a, if you didn't have to worry about that? Like if you could just do ampersand J and then you Maybe, and then I don't know. Like I'd, I'd be curious to see what it's like. And so I'd like to look up like whatever that program was and see how that works and see if it flows that way for yeah. me or not. The other, so the other thing about the way I write, mm-hmm. being very bad at it. Sure. Fi- like Everybody's phys- bad at it. We just got to keep going. No, like physically oh. with a pen. Yeah. My, hair, my handwriting is very messy and I struggle with trying to keep up with my brain. Yeah, I know that problem. Um, I can keep up with my brain pretty good on a keyboard mm-hmm. on a computer because I can I'm I can type very quickly. 
But with a pen, sometimes you were like, okay, thoughts, pause. Like I'm catching up. Yeah. Right. Uh, and sometimes I do that. And sometimes I just like create shapes instead of letters and words. And I go, yeah, those are those letters. And I just like <laughs> catch up and it's move on. And it just turns into like nonsense mm-hmm. scratched in ink on the paper because my hand wants to catch up to my thought. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of okay with that. Okay. Cause I'm not going back and reading mm-hmm. this stuff. And even when I do write out a full word, it's not all that legible anyway. <laughs> um, I'm actually curious to see if my handwriting gets any better because I'm doing a lot more handwriting. Uh, it'll only get better if you reinforce good habits. <laughs> right. And I don't think I'm doing that. I think I might just be reinforcing bad habits. Yeah. But it's, it, it is genuinely mostly like it's, it's a valuable practice to me because it's helping train my brain to think better and more clearly. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. Well, that's good. Yeah. Are you are you writing with a goal at all yet? Like, do you have a, a place you want to go or like a place you want to get in yourself? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I just like, honestly, the goal is like, just fill a notebook. Yeah. Like, just do this and whatever. I, I don't think I have a goal in mind. I just want to see what happens. Okay. Like, what does this practice of writing at least a page Mm-hmm. five days a week do yeah. to my to my ability to write anything mm-hmm. and my ability to like you know think more clearly and understand okay myself better do you, is it something you think about throughout the rest of the day or when you're when you finish your page you close the book and go on about your life i think i do that i don't i don't think i think about it all that much okay. i don't i don't dwell on it afterwards and i and i don't think I'm never like thinking like, oh, what am I going to write in the morning? I'm Mm -hmm. not like trying to like plan it out or whatever. It's just like I wake up, I shower, I get dressed, I cook some breakfast and then I sit down and just like, what's the thing on my brain at that moment? Mm -hmm. Start there. See Hmm. what happens. So it's not even necessarily like this is the most important thing I've been thinking about all day or this is the big thing that happened in my life or it's just, Hmm. just write stuff down. So I'm I'm starting to like feel like I'm running out of things to write about by doing that by just sitting down at a blank page and going mm-hmm. and so I'm starting to like think about like what would I talk about what would I write what is the structure of what I want to write hmm. because because my ultimate goal is to like get back into writing plays do you want to turn this habit into like starting a play yeah yeah and so like i'm trying to think like what stories do i want to tell what are what is that structure going to look like mm. and very baby steps like i don't have any answers to those questions yet but i'm trying to like the days that i have felt most successful in my writing have been where in the day before or in time before i was thinking about it ahead of time where i was thinking about what it would look like what i was going to do and trying to create a structure before i sat down Really? Yeah. Those are your best days. Those are the days where it's easiest, I would say. So I don't know if the, if the stuff's good or bad or better or mm. worse, but those are the days where I go, okay, I know what I'm going to write. Hmm. Or at least know where I'm going to start or what I'm going to try. And weirdly, when I tried like saying like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to write about this like in the text of the thing, like I set something up to follow up on the next day. By the time I sit down to it, I'm like, nah, that was dumb. And pick something <laughs> else. But if I'm actively thinking about it or wondering about it, it's been easier for me to follow through on that thing that I decided as the day wore on. Right. 
See, for me, like, if I spend 15, 20 minutes writing stuff down, it's, it's like totally isolated. Yeah. It's completely separate from anything I've written in the past. And it's completely separate from whatever I'm going to write the next day. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't even necessarily like, actually like, it almost helps me like not dwell on whatever I woke up thinking about. Yeah. Cause like I write it down and I like, it's out. (laughs) Yeah. Like I get through it and I'm like, cool. Got it. And then I'm (laughs) like, it's almost like freeing myself to, to put it aside. Yeah. Um, but I'm not trying to like build on anything. And I'm not even interested in going back and referencing it mm-hmm. ever. It's just night. It's like I said, when, like when I first mentioned this, it's cool to see that there is stuff yeah. already there. Like, I love the idea of like getting towards the end of this notebook. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I started this like two weeks ago or whatever with a brand new notebook. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to like be towards the end of this notebook and be like, I've been doing this for months. Yeah. Like I have a whole notebook filled with illegible drivel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because I've, I've kind of been doing the same way in that I opened up a new document and I've been writing in the same document the whole time. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, You just put like a bunch of spaces before each new day. Well, so this is, this is the thing. Um, and this has, I think, been impacting my writing because my goal is to write longer works. Like, I don't want to write two-page plays. There is a right. place for two-page plays, but that's not what I want to work on long Is term. there? Yes. Huh. Okay. Yeah. There's there's a place for, you know, very short plays. Uh, that's, that's a thing that exists. Interesting. Um, or sub-ten pages, like, is definitely, you know, there are play festivals for very short plays, ten-minute plays. It's like features and short films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like there's like school events, classrooms love 10 minute plays cause they can rehearse them a bunch. They can get into the feel of things. They can break it down and get character beats and have a thing that is complete and whole in and of, of itself that doesn't take two and a half hours to watch. That's neat. Yeah. Never thought of that, but that's not what you're interested in writing. Yeah. But no, there's, there's tons of short plays out there and I might, I might try and build some shorter plays I said that joke that I retold on stage, like that is a complete unit in and of itself, Mm -hmm. but it's written on this document, like this one long document. And here's the thing is I don't put a bunch of spaces at the end of each page, like to break it up. So when I open that document, the usually it is like, there are two lines on the top of this page already, which is what I finished up with yesterday. Hmm. Uh, And sometimes I use that. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just say scene, this is happening like underneath that, but that like crossing that page barrier in pages, the app, mm-hmm. that's how I know I've written my two pages. I cross it once. I say I'm halfway across the second time. Okay. I'm done. Hmm. I don't know that I've written two pages until I hit that second point. And usually I'm past that second point with like the last line or two of dialogue, whatever I had in my head. Right. And so I have this continuous document, you know, scroll almost of pieces that while they are, you know, all of page length, they're not a new, fresh thing every single time. Right. Unlike flipping a page in a notebook, like everything else is right there for me to potentially scroll up and look at. Right. And some, so some, I'm different from you in that uh, sometimes I go more than a page, right? So like mm-hmm. the left page will be full and then like a third of the next one. Sure. And then I leave the rest of that empty and go to a new clean one and the date is at the very top uh-huh. every time. But if someone looked at your document, if you printed that out, yeah, they'd be like, "Cool, look at this 
20 page screenplay yeah and they'd be like wait this doesn't make any sense because it would be jumping from thing to thing yeah and and so there are some continuous characters for lack of a better term that i've used throughout all of it um just to have names to put on dialogue Uh uh-huh and so those show up repeatedly but there are definitely like jarring like stop in the middle of a conversation new thing starts but if you just glanced at it you wouldn't be able to see that you might or might not, not it really. depends, yeah it depends on what you what you looked at but yeah it's it's really it is one document um, and i i called it untitled for now is the name of the document because <laughs> it's by default it's called untitled and i'm like right. well yeah for, for now. now yeah <laughs> um that's really interesting yeah when when are you going to feel ready to create a new document and actually like start a thing? That's I don't know. Its own thing. I don't know. I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'll be able to say until it happens. Sure. When I'm like, okay, now I've got an idea. Let's make this a thing. Are you going to, you're going to have like been, you're going to have done like a week of writing and been like, Oh wait. And you're like copy and paste that like last week's yeah. output into a new thing and be like, this is the thing. This is this is a thing to, to work on or try or or sketch out and say, okay, what does a larger play of this look like? Are you are you secretly writing like your masterpiece? This like crazy, weird, all jumbled up, bouncing from one thing to another single document. Is this going to be some like new form of playwriting that's going to take the world by storm? In Highly years? unlikely. Yeah, yeah probably. It's probably actually just very bad, right? Yeah, that's that's the much more likely scenario. It's just not very good. You can fantasize, right? Like maybe maybe what I think of my own work as just absolute bad nonsense is secretly what the world's been looking for. Yeah, what I've realized about myself, at least when I do that, or when I think about like... When you fantasize like that? Yeah, it it's as good as writing. <laughs> so I just don't have to do the writing and I stop. <laughs> That's that's been what I've I have noticed is that if I think about like man this is really good I'm going to be great and it's going to be amazing that's almost as good as actually making it good and great and amazing and finishing it and so I don't <laughs> Uh yeah for a long time I would refuse to tell people like what I was writing because if I would explain it to them I would say like oh good I've gotten it out there in the world and and like I'm done now like not intentionally, but the right. act of telling people about it fulfilled the same like mental need in a certain way. You've expressed it. Yeah. Even if it's not the way it actually needs to have been yeah. expressed. And most of those I'm never, I never want to come back to. Hmm. There is one, there is one that I still want to come back to and I haven't figured out how to do it yet. Don't tell me. Cause then you'll, well, I've told other people about <laughs> it, so it's not, it's, it's out there in the universe. I've told people about it, but uh, it's it's a variation on La Ronde, which is a very famous French play. About sounds pretentious already. It's it's pretty pretentious. It's about <laughs> syphilis, but they don't say it's about syphilis. It's a metaphor. Yeah, it's from the past, so they couldn't say like syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> but in the past, everyone had syphilis. A lot of people did. Yeah. Uh, so the play, the La Ronde, is a really interesting play because it takes place. It's a series of two character scenes. And so in the first scene, you have character A and character B. And the second scene, you have character B and character C. So the same character, from one of them leaves and a new one comes on. And that continues until you get an entire loop. And so you get character J and character A. And it becomes a circle around nice. the round, the ring. Yeah. Um, and that's a play structure that's been used by a few plays since. Other people have done things with it. That sounds really fun to read or watch. 
it's okay to watch. Well, I've, I've not seen the Laurent, Laurent. I've seen an adaptation of it and it was okay. Okay. Um, but I, I want to do the opposite of that. And this, this takes some explaining. Like I have the structure of this play, but I do not have the plot at all. And that's what has stymied me. Hmm. But it's a really great structure. Okay, explain this. So, uh, let's say you have five characters, A, B, C, D, and E. And in Laurent, you would have characters A and B in a scene. Then you'd have characters B and C in a scene. Then you'd have characters C and D, D and E, E and A. Right. Um, so, what I would want to do is write a play where instead of having characters A and B in a scene, in scene one, you have characters C, D, and E in a scene. So mm-hmm. the characters who are not in that first scene. Then you would have character C leave and character A join, and so you'd have A, D, and E. So basically what whatever that group is that's not on stage during La Ronde of that five-character group, you would have the other three on stage at any point in time. Right. And creating a different set of pairings each time. And so you'd have A, D, and E. Then you would have A, B, and E. And so there's always two characters who are off stage and three who are on. So you're you're slowly cycling through who's not on stage instead of who is on stage. Yes. Gotcha. Um, and so typically any character would be on stage for like two to three scenes in a row and then not be on stage. Hmm. Uh, and so then it probably becomes a, less about the the thing that's being talked about on stage between these two people and what and it becomes more about what the two people who are not on stage are missing maybe like again i don't have i don't have the story i don't have the stuff that happens yet i have the structure right which is not the best way to start a play it sounds like that's probably how laronde was started it might be how laronde was started so it's fine um my advanced version of this um of course there's an advanced version (laughs) of course there is um i think i did it there's still three characters on stage at any point in time but the the ideal goal was uh, i have it written down i think somewhere like i had i had cards with like character names written on them that I was shuffling around on a table. <laughs> um, because my ultimate goal was to be able to, I think I did it with 10 characters originally. And that was impossible. Oh, because the Laurent had, I think 10 characters. And so that's what I was thinking. And so what I was going to do is take any three characters from off stage and put them together. Um, Anyway, I had 10 scenes. That was the, the, the ultimate thing. Was I had 10 unique scenes, 10 unique pairings of, or groups of characters. It may have been with five. I'd have to do the math and figure it out. But I ended up with 10 unique sets of characters on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, sets of three. So I had you know this group of three, this group of three, this group of three. And each one was a unique group of three. And there were 10 of them and thus 10 scenes. Um, and my ultimate goal, I don't know if I'm explaining this at all. I'm sorry if I'm not, but I think I'm getting it. Okay. My ultimate goal was to see if it would be possible to rearrange those scenes in any particular order. Cause each one would be a standalone moment. They would not necessarily be sequential. It's just like make it possible to do an arbitrary order. Yes. 
And it could be performed in any different order. Well, so so I started off trying to figure out like what the order would be. Like what is the correct order? Right. Um, and so like I started it in the blandest way possible, which is I had each of the ten scenes on a card, and then I because you have there's a weird pattern of like how can people which people enter and which people leave. Trying to have it be one and one every time, but that was very difficult to accomplish because of the the because you have three people on stage, so having one leave and one enter every time is making it weird. Yeah, there's going to be... There's only uh, one person who stays every time, which doesn't work. You can probably do some very complex math to I, figure this out. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I started trying to just manually like work through different combinations of these 10 scenes. Uh, and I quickly, somewhat quickly, realized that the number of possible combinations of scenes was 10 factorial. That's a lot. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. You're familiar with factorials mm-hmm. from from your school days. Yeah, like I remember. Yes, I made my math comment because this sounds a lot like something I learned in yeah, <laughs> in like a college math class. And so I hit ten factorial, and I went, "Oh, <laughs> that's a long play." Well, I wouldn't do it ten factorial <laughs> scenes, but that means I've got ten different. I've got ten factorial different organizations for this play. And maybe one of them's right, but I don't know how to find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One over 10 factorial is not very good odds of finding the right combo. Yeah. And so I said, well, what if I could structure it in such a way that it didn't matter what order the scenes were in? That sounds harder somehow. It's probably <laughs> harder. It's probably harder. But the ultimate goal being. Like this is this is the idealized version I had is you start the play and you have a sign or a bulletin board or something on f- the front of the stage and a hat with the 10 scenes in it. And you pull them out one at a time and you put them on the 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 board mm-hmm. and that's the order you perform them in that night. So it's not even planned ahead. No. Now the scenes are set, so we know what scene A is, what scene, you know, what scene one, what scene two, what scene three are. But we perform them in an undetermined order. And because there's so many combinations. Ten factorial. You can watch this production so many times and truly get a different experience every time. Mm-hmm. The chances of a repeat are, are low. Very low. And other variations would be small from one to another, but... But still interesting to observe. Potentially, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it's like... Well, so that's the other side of it is if each scene is standalone, then it doesn't actually matter which one follows the next. And so there's not... There's, you know, if I see scene A before scene B, do I feel differently about it? Does it... Is it better? Is it worse? Is there an idealized version or is it all kind of the same? Because that's honestly how I feel about LaRonde is that by the time I get halfway through, I'm like, this feels kind of the same. Like each each scene is unique, but it felt kind of like repetitive. And so how do I avoid that? Right. Well, that's the thing is, this is a great premise. Thank you. Right? Like I the, put a lot of work into it. I can tell. Um, like I'm, I don't, care about plays at all <laughs> it's not my thing whatsoever and i'm like yeah like make this i want yeah. to watch this um you've clearly put a lot of work into it yeah 
the problem is is you haven't put the important work into it yet of actually like writing the plot in the story of what's going to happen yeah and that's still that's the hard work frustratingly <laughs> what you need to do to make it a good thing yes is actually write what the people are saying yes hopefully write it so well that well so the, the next step for me structure is figuring out who out figuring out who these characters are like mm-hmm. that's the next step for me is figuring out and i'm i'm not here yet like i don't i'm not at the point where i want to do this because i want to get my writing back mm-hmm. but the next step i realized is i got to figure out who these people are so that i can put them in these combinations to find out what happens right instead of calling them a b c d and e i have to give them names and personalities and humanity uh, which is very difficult for me because I often figure out who my characters are by writing them. Hmm. And do you feel like this structure forces you to f- figure out who they are before you can start writing them? Yes. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds unintuitive to me too. Yeah. Like sit down and like just dis- start describing characters and their traits and mm-hmm. and whatnot and then from there writing yeah, dialogue. Although like, it's worth pointing out, that's how you play Fiasco. True. I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer to it yet. But that's a puzzle I've created for myself. The last time I was writing. Is that like the? Is that like the best thing in your bag right now? Is that like the? Like, are you of almost, the unwritten works I have? It's the one I am most interested in. It sounds like. I mean, it sounds like it's the kind of thing where you want to continue practicing the way you are now mm-hmm. and make sure like you're, you're back in your groove and you're comfortable before you like start attempting to work on yeah. this again. Cause you don't want to work on this again before you're ready enough to make it really good. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I want to do, uh, I think I've talked to you about it is, um, something about the UT tower shooting. I don't think you've told me about this. Okay. Really? I didn't know that was a thing of interest to you. It kind of is. This is weird. So I was, I was asked to share my dramaturgy chops with a play that someone had written called like the tower play. Ostensibly about the UT shooting. Okay. Uh, And I didn't like it at all, but that's another story. Um, but in my w- dramaturgical research for it, oh man, I feel real dumb right now. <laughs> <laughs> what? The guy who did the shooting. You don't know his name. I don't know his name. I don't know a lot about um, the shooting. I keep just wanting to say Charles Nelson Riley, and that's the guy from the match game. <laughs> Charles Whitman. Charles Joseph Whitman. That's right. Uh, it wasn't Charles. I was close there. Charles Joseph Whitman. Kinky Friedman wrote a song about him called The Ballad of Charles Joseph Whitman. Hmm. It's an interesting song. Um, but so the, the Charles Whitman archive and the UT shooting archive is at the UT library or the Austin library. I don't, it's, one of, it's one of the libraries here in town. Naturally. Um, and you can go there and get the archive boxes 
it's not it's, you know, they don't give you the originals but they'll give you a copy of everything right to peruse through and so you say like hey i'm looking for these um you know these are the box numbers and they send someone back into the stacks and they bring out a cart with the boxes on it and it's got everything from his diary and the letters we have of his to the news reports about the shooting like the papers to and this is this is what really struck me and like started me going like oh there's something here to the overtime reports from the cops who were investigating the shooting hmm like and his FBI files in there too the, the Charles Joseph Whitman FBI file like everything everything's there in these boxes and i did my my master's thesis was do, was a piece of documentary fiction i used the the trial transcripts of Joan of Arc to make my plays right mm-hmm. and like this is the sort of thing that i would want to do like that archive of stuff was like oh i want to write this play Right. Like this play that the other person's writing about like the tower, but it's also about like nuclear fallout. And it's also about like school shootings and it's about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a, that's an interesting play that he can write. Cause I don't care for it. Sure. But I wanted to write, and I still do. I want to write the play that is documentary from these archives. Because if you could turn hundreds of year old, trial transcripts about Joan of Arc into something cool. Mm -hmm. What could you do with this like treasure trove of documents about? Now it's worth noting that the things that Charles Whitman wrote are still under copyright to his estate. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Like his diaries? Mm -hmm. I never thought about that. Are my is my journal copyrighted to me? Yes. <laughs> hmm. I mean, they, and they state that very explicitly. Like when you get the stuff, like like FBI files was Republic. I could use those, but like his diary, which is fascinating, you can't just reproduce it. I can't just reproduce it. Like I would love to be able to use that and use that as his dialogue and yeah. and do that, but it's going to be copywritten until you know twenty fifty or something dumb like that. Until Mickey Mouse is dead. Yeah, um, because they have like his journals from like when he was in the military and like talking about what it was like to be in the military and like these really fascinating things and it's it's there's something there that i would love to make into a thing uh because i really enjoyed doing the documentary work with joan of arc like i thought that was really interesting and i didn't i don't love what i wrote like i i think it's flawed and and structurally unsound but (laughs) i wrote it and they let me graduate so it's good enough (laughs) But I would almost want to like redeem myself by taking that work and making it into a thing. Are you interested in the UT tower shooting, like as its own thing, aside from a playwriting project? Like, not really. What? I mean, it's it's interesting because it was the first school shooting, right? And that's important mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. It certainly started a trend. Yeah, but and and I don't. So that's the thing is, I don't know what the play would say yet. But it, there's material enough for it to say something. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what the writing of it would be, is figuring out what do I want to say with this material? What do I want this play to say? Huh. And I don't know what that would be. I'd have to figure it out while I was writing it right. and working through the, the documentation. But, you know, being able to pull out a folder, you know, half an inch thick full of overtime reports was like 
powerful in a way that hit me in a way that I don't know if other people understand it. Like when I always say like the overtime reports, people are like, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, like I can understand. It's like, yeah, cool, Kevin. Yeah. Those are police overtime reports. Have fun. Yeah. But also like, I mean, it's a giant stack of information yeah. to learn. But, but from. the idea that like something like this didn't exist, but also the reality of, literally having to file overtime because this was the most important thing that was happening. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to go out there and everybody was out there. Everybody was on it doing interviews, knocking on doors, trying to figure out things. And then you also have to like the banality of having to like track your time <laughs> right? and report that I worked six extra hours this week because of this shooting. And right. I don't I don't know what the there is hmm. there, but there is something there that I would love to play with. Yeah, but, you're you're circling something. Yeah. yeah. Um, um so those are those are the only things that I have like in my head that I would want to work on at yeah. some point. That sounds like a really interesting project. I am um, I um I didn't know really much of anything about the UT shooting until We don't talk about it in Texas. Is it taboo? It feels taboo. Like really? I don't know why. But it's not a thing that UT talks about particularly. It's not something we talk about in Austin. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I didn't know about it before I moved to Austin. I'd, I'd heard of it because mm-hmm. I knew it was like the first like major school shooting. Yeah. Um. But I think last year I, uh, there was an important anniversary mm-hmm. of it. Was you it, are correct. Was it? I think it was 50. 50 years? It was, it was something like that. Um, yeah. And I remember... Aside from living in Austin, like the media world I follow was talking a lot about it, especially yes. because of how it relates to a lot of important, significant school shootings mm-hmm. that have, and public shootings in general that have been mm-hmm. happening a lot. Yeah. And, you know, gun gun rights and that entire You probably remember that date in particular, because the date that it either went into effect or was signed in, or the date, the anniversary was either the date, I don't remember particularly which one it was, that this bill was signed into law or that it went into effect, which was the allowance of campus carry. It was the same day. Yes. As the anniversary of the Charles Whitman shooting. That seems almost intentionally cruel. Yeah. Huh? So yeah, campus carry either again, it was signed or went into effect on that day. That was the anniversary of the Charles Whitman shooting. Um, and that was the, uh, UT students to the fun Cox not Glocks protest. Yes, about that, yes. which I think is just a absolutely. I thought it was pretty funny. fantastic. Yeah, way to protest. Bunch of dildos. Bunch dildos everywhere. Yeah, must have been a good day at UT. Probably. Yeah, that many dildos. It's hard to say why it couldn't be. Hard <laughs> not to have a good time with dildos all over the place. Yeah. Um, but I remember reading, uh, reading a lot of you know just articles and retrospectives and think pieces and mm-hmm. whatnot about. UT shooting and what it meant and its significance and yeah. whatnot and, and found it to be a really interesting story. Um, yep, it was fifty years. Fifty years. Yeah. Okay, God, it's a long time. Yep, sixty-six. But it, um, for me, it was interesting as a just like a really well distilled example of like what the horror of something like that must be like to experience mm-hmm. because. I don't I want to make sure that I don't make it sound like I admire anything about the guy. Yeah. But like 
holy shit, it was well planned. Like the circumstances of it, it was well executed. Well executed. The circumstances of it are perfectly terrifying mm-hmm. to be in a very high tower, mm-hmm. be at the top of a very high tower, to be an expertly trained marine marksman. Mm-hmm. Like the the kind of terror that that's capable of inflicting. Yeah. Like oh my god, there's bullets hitting people, and they're coming from an expert and they're coming from an unstoppable place yeah it's like the formula of that is almost (laughs) yeah it's it's as it's almost as bad as can be yeah right it's not like the (laughs) what is typically thought of as a like modern school shooting as exemplified in the horrible (laughs) you know what i'm gonna say the oa Right, like kid walks into a cafeteria with a duffel bag of guns and just starts spraying. Like that's also terrifying and bad and very, very terrible. Mm -hmm. But like it's it's a different kind of fear than like, oh my god, there's someone a couple hundred feet in the air. Yeah. Carefully sighting out people and And killing them. Picking them. Yeah. Like it's there's a unique kind of fear and Mm -hmm. dread in that. As opposed to the like chaos kind of yeah terror and a like walk into a cafeteria and spray yeah he had several hundred rounds of ammunition with him yeah but like that's what was interesting to me is yeah. like this this first one was so such a distillation of the thing mm-hmm. and they kind of never stopped yeah but we don't um, talk about it you you bring up the fact that the the campus carry law was coincided with the anniversary of the shooting yeah. is like i get that there's distance from it because it was 50 years ago mm-hmm. and that's a long time and like people have no pe- one was even alive back then <laughs> right 66 <laughs> is ancient history but like there might not be anyone left at ut who was at ut at the time yeah um so you probably cycled through an entire group of people there might not be a, yeah not just students but like faculty staff right. administration like there like might not be a, a living legacy of that at yeah. ut at all anymore. i wouldn't be surprised yeah um so i can understand the distance from it but still like were there lessons learned <laughs> yeah one thing i think is really fascinating about uh whitman since we're talking about this and i've read things because i was fascinated by his archive and spent a few hours looking at it right um, there was uh, a rumor, and it was really just a rumor. Like there was never any anything substantiated about it. But an excuse that was given in a lot of for a lot of people was that there was a that he had a brain tumor, and that that was why he did it. Um, and Whitman himself okay. even said that like if there's any insurance from this, people should use it to study mental health. I'm paraphrasing here, but. Like that money should go to help people with mental problems. Very kind of him. Yeah. <laughs> Look at all my sympathy. <laughs> uh, and there might have been a tumor in his brain, but it was, if there was, and there's still some question about that even after the autopsy, it was like non-malignant malignant and small enough and in a place that it would have no impact on his life. Mm. But uh, in my mind, like that's the first example of using mental health as an excuse for mass shootings. Oh, and I, and, and that's a, 
terrible excuse. Like, I don't, I don't think that's a good excuse. And I think the people who say like, oh, this is a mental health problem. We need to fix mental health in America. Right. We'll fix the gun violence problems. I think, I don't think that is the case. Right. I think that is a scapegoat. I don't think those people actually care about mental health because I don't see it in anything else they do. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, like being aware of the words they use and like why maybe saying crazy is not the best option or like understanding that, you know, there are plenty of people around you that struggle with mental health issues all the time and it often goes ignored or unknown and mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't come up. It's just like, yeah, there's, there's a crazy guy right. who shot some people. Right. Uh, but I like, if I were to write this play, I would investigate like that story and the story of, the tumor and as an excuse and hmm. his, his own writing about mental health as sort of like, is this a place where is this a Genesis point? Is this a point where that became a talking point or is a seed of that talking point? That's going a great forward angle. of, uh, I mean, it's even in the kinky Friedman song. There was a rumor about a tumor <laughs> there. There had been mass shootings before he did his thing, but it was, a codifying moment in American history and in recent American history that I don't think we've dealt with in our national consciousness yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, it was a, it seemed to be the start of something because it was, because it was at a school Mm -hmm. and because it was like this one guy who clearly like planned something yeah and then just he was it was intentional and then just did it yeah like it wasn't yeah it wasn't like a wild shootout kind Mm -hmm. of thing or yeah or circumstances led to people pulling out guns and lots of people died it was just like this guy was like i'm gonna go climb the tower and i'm gonna shoot people kill a bunch of people on the way to the top and then kill a bunch once i'm up there yeah and that's it yeah um yeah the mental health thing is a really interesting angle I forgot I forgot about that whole aspect of it but that's the go to is mm-hmm. oh no someone uh someone Yeah, this was someone just, with mental health problems and we didn't need to get them help and that's the answer to gun violence. Right. And I agree like I agree that you probably shouldn't let people with severe mental health problems own guns. Yeah, although we're not stopping them at this point in time. Right. But I also think you shouldn't let anybody own guns (laughs) well there's that (laughs) but like if you're gonna pick categories of people to specifically not like yeah i guess include people with severe mental illness in there like i don't know just to be safe yeah but like that's not the problem no that's a scapegoat the problem is the guns it's the bullets the problem's the bullets okay have you ever heard that chris rock bit I might have meant referenced it before. I don't think so, but so we don't need we don't need gun control. We need bullet control. <laughs> we need to make every bullet five thousand dollars. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> that's classic. That's a classic Chris Rock bit. It's like I'm gonna get on layaway and then I'm gonna come and shoot you. <laughs> layaway bullets. Yeah, every bullet costs five thousand dollars. That's a really good idea. Because, like, yeah, sure, buy all the guns you want. Right? Yeah. Uh, you can just carry them around and like hit people with them like clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Bullets that, are the problem. But that bullet, that's a expensive bullet. Yeah. Just put a big tax on it. Use it to, I don't know, uh, maybe help people with mental health problems. <laughs> there you go. Just put a $5,000 tax on every bullet. 
You want to buy a case of 20? That would be $100,000, please. That, okay, like, now I'm beginning to see a problem in this. And the problem is that only rich people can shoot yes, people. That's that's also a problem. And, like, if there's kind of, like, a central thing to how I feel like we should solve the world's problem is it's not... It doesn't include letting rich people shoot others or like continuing to allow rich people to have exclusive abilities. Yes, that's fair. We should just eat the rich, eat the rich, man. Seriously though. Like I want to kill every (laughs) single person who's rich. (laughs) Here's the deal. What if we, I don't know how you do this economically, Mm -hmm. but like, Make bullets a like give bullets the cultural classification of like poor people stuff, <laughs> right? Like, oh, bullets! Like, no, 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 we don't buy bullets. <laughs> we buy two hundred dollar platters, right? We have eighty eighty five dollar plate weddings. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Bu- bullets are for bullets are for those people it's beneath us, right? And then. If you can like build that into yeah. our society, and then you make them five thousand dollars a piece. Then all the poor people get bullets. We just kill all the rich people. <laughs> I think I figured it out. There you go. You've solved every problem. I'm gonna start calling my congressman and telling them <laughs> about my gun control plans. <laughs> uh, what's uh, the poor people get like food stamps? Bullet stamps. Bullet stamps. I no. I promise you, the wealthy will stop buying bullets if you need bullet stamps to get them. I. I mean, I get what you're saying, <laughs> but we already know that the extremely wealthy in our country benefit from tons of government handouts. <laughs> That's probably why they're wealthy. It certainly helps. <laughs> but uh, all of the massive tax breaks, including the recent Trump care bill, mm. uh, which to veer into politics only ever so briefly, as if we're the last talk 20 minutes of gun shootings, <laughs> school shootings wasn't political. Uh, CBO announced what the Trump care policy would uh, do. Uh, 20 something. 24 million. million people would lose health care uh, and it would save like $300 billion in taxes over the next 10 years. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, from rich people. It's a tax break for the rich. But do you know what I just heard, though? Yeah? Is we're saving more dollars than poor people. And since <laughs> dollars are more important than poor people... It's a net win. That sounds like the kind of balance I can be yeah. in favor of. Well, uh, you and the rest of the GOP. America first, my friend. <sighs> Amy's leaving town this Thursday, so I'm probably going to make bread all weekend. <laughs> just to live <laughs> off that. I'm uh I'm at a really wonderful place in my um bread making and grocery cycle. Yeah. Where um I have all purpose flour, whole wheat flour, bread flour, double O flour. What do you do with double O flour? That's what I use that uh exclusively for my pizza dough now. Okay, cool. Is it's, it working out pretty well? It's the pizza dough flour. Okay. Um and it's very good. It's very fine. Oh. Which is what you want. Apparently what you want, flour. yeah. Um I have I have all those four flowers currently open and working through their bags and a full backup bag of each, <laughs> which is like hits all my like yeah. 
inventory management now buttons. You, you really need to put those into containers, not in the bags. I should. But I would mean going and buying a lot of big containers. Go get some mason jars. Some big quart mason jars. I don't know how big the bags of flour you are. Like, I bought the smaller ones last time I did mine. Oh, see, I'm buying full five-pound bags of flour. Okay. I have 20 pounds of flour in my pantry That is right a now. lot of flour. Listen, I bake a lot of bread. I know, but put some container around that. <laughs> if you get a bug, man, you're going to have all the bugs. And yeah. you're going to throw it all away. Don't throw it away. Use it anyway. It's fine. Bugs are fine. <laughs> it's flour. It's fine. It's fine. Put some bugs in it. Uh, Probably will make the, flour, the bread taste better with a couple bugs. I honestly... It's fine. Eat a bug. <laughs> They're just bugs. Nobody cares. It's fine. Have you ever eaten a bug? Probably. Who cares? Yeah, I I probably have made bread with bugs in it. Like I it's fine. If you if you baked a loaf of bread, yeah, cut it open, yeah, saw a bug, would you care? I'd probably pick it out, but I'd still eat the bread. Okay. Yeah, same. Yeah. That's that's about how I feel with it. Listen, yeah. From Kevin, from Kevin and Jesse. Yeah. Bugs are fine. Here's your bug. parting message. Eat a fucking bug. Who yeah, cares? It's fine. You'll be fine. You won't die. Uh, no, I am going to I'm going to immediately hit bachelor mode as soon as Amy leaves on Thursday. <laughs> bachelor mode is uh only exist in your home in your underwear and cook a lot of things that no one else wants to eat. It's a pretty much. Yeah. And a lot of Wendy's. I eat a lot of Wendy's. <laughs> Oh. I love Wendy's. Wendy's is good. But like if I'm at home and it's like Saturday afternoon and I'm like, well, I could cook a thing or or there is a Wendy's a block away. Oh, you have a Wendy's a block away, uh, maybe two blocks, but it's super close. I'm like, or I just get in my car and go get a double baconator, a big fry and a drink and maybe a frosty. Guess I'm doing that. <laughs> he said from already inside of his car. <laughs> yeah, you're like wondering to yourself if you should get Wendy's like as you're walking like, yeah. through the parking lot <laughs> to your car. Yeah. No, I and it's funny because Amy's definitely called me on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you cook things when I'm gone? <laughs> Just Wendy's. Uh, and well, I mean, to be fair, I can eat three meals a day at work. So like Thursday and Friday beset yeah because i'll just before i go home i'll just grab a sandwich from the deli that's and eat that and Mm -hmm. a beer because we got beer uh and maybe grab a bag of chips to take home with me (laughs) why not uh so saturday i will fend for myself you'll have some wendy's yes (laughs) (laughs) i might have wendy's friday too have you ever eaten three meals a day at wendy's no but only because the wendy's near me doesn't serve breakfast (laughs) I'm not lying. The first time we came to, when we first moved to Austin, um, Amy was out of town for a conference or something important. And I was in town and the Wendy's that I went to in Ohio had breakfast and they would do like the chicken biscuits. And those were great. Uh, and I went to Wendy's at like nine 30 and like went through the drive through and just rolled up my window and just waited <laughs> and nobody said anything. <laughs> I was like, what? What's going on? Uh, Just didn't realize they might not be open. It didn't occur to me that they could not serve breakfast? Right. I mean, I guess, you know, franchise business, you do whatever you want. You know, we serve spaghetti. (laughs) (laughs) But, and so, like, I was like, huh, that's weird. And so I came back at, like, 10 o'clock. I was like, hey, are y'all still serving breakfast? (laughs) Because I had gotten it in my head that I wanted this chicken biscuit thing. 
They're like, oh, we don't serve breakfast. I'm like, fine, I'll take a double bacon in or no mayo. Let's <laughs> fry. <laughs> That's uh, also sounds like a pretty good breakfast. It's all right. Um, so I don't eat fast food a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't really anymore. I did a lot when I worked over here. Yeah. Well, I would, I'd go, I go to Freebirds all the time, which is not really fast food, but yeah. Eh, but I would also go to McDonald's a lot because it's also right there. Right. Um, I go to Freebirds every once in a while. It's a good burrito. I love me Freebirds. It is better than Chipotle. Anyone says otherwise is wrong and silly and other words and foolish and it's, outrageous. It's certainly better than Chipotle. Um, I have exactly two fast food cravings. Okay. And I, when I, I, so I had, I had a Wendy's craving recently and I didn't satisfy it. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but my Wendy's craving, these are like every couple months. Yeah. I'll get one of these. Yeah. Wendy's craving. I need to go and I need to get exactly this. Okay. I need to get two junior bacon cheeseburgers. Those are great. Small fry. Uh Uh-huh. Chocolate frosty. Perfect. Dip those fries in the frosty. Yeah. Pound those JBCs. That is like the perfect fast food meal. Yeah. I love it. Um, the really bad one. Yeah. Is maybe twice a year. Mm-hmm. I have an uncontrollable urge mm-hmm. that demands to be satisfied. Yeah. And I like can't sleep until it is <laughs> to go to Taco Bell. Oh. Right. It's bad. <laughs> and I need to eat a Crunchwrap Supreme. <laughs> <laughs> and the entire process from the start of the craving yeah. to to when I get off the toilet a couple hours after <laughs> eating it, the entire process yeah. is loathsome and despicable <laughs> and disgusting. I feel you. I don't enjoy walking into the Taco Bell and ordering it. <laughs> I don't enjoy eating it, uh-huh. but I have to. That's weird. Right? Yeah. It's like I like I need this and I want it because I think it's delicious, but I, I... You know it's not. I know it's bad through and through. Yeah. And I still got to do it every once in a while. I would say the closest thing I have to that, um, as someone who used to eat a lot of fast food, mm-hmm. and the only reason I eat less now is because... Two out of my three meals a day are paid for by my company. <laughs> yeah, because it's easy not to. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I've, I've never had any shame about eating McDonald's. Like Taco Bell, I had shame about. Like that one's Taco Bell is shameful. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then I would go to a Taco Bell, and it never made me feel good. No, it usually made me feel bad. And I mean, like physically, like the food itself made me feel bad. And like I can, I usually feel okay after my Wendy's. Yeah. Because I think that's pretty good. Yeah, Wendy's is pretty is pretty top notch. But like, Crunchwrap Supreme is like good and just disgusting the whole time. Yeah, but my my Achilles heel, such as it is, is the McRib. Oh, will you get the McRib every time it's available? Yes. And so a couple years ago, they started doing something even worse when the McRib came back, mm-hmm. targeting me specifically. <laughs> Like other people might have been caught in the fallout, but they said this, this will get Kevin. They had a meeting about how to target you. Yeah, the advertiser. So group. if you if when the McRib is back, you go and you say, "I would like the McRib meal," which is a McRib, some fries, and a drink. You know, standard combo style fast food thing. Yep. Uh, 
they would say for a dollar more, you can have a second McRib. How can you say no? I couldn't. <laughs> Could not say no to that. And so I would pay the dollar more and have two McRibs and fries and a drink. Yeah. Uh, no onions because I don't want like anything pretending to be healthy on this thing. Mm, onions are a vegetable, I hear. Yeah. Pickles aren't, though, so it's okay. <laughs> and And the last time I had a McRib, I realized it was bad. Like, like it's always been bad. It's always been the same. But like you, like you bit into it and you're like, wait, yeah, this is gross. This is. I finished it and the other one. <laughs> but I'm, I'm conflicted because I don't know if I'm gonna get one or not next time the McRib is back. Really? Like I think, like I think I will. You're gonna probably. But here's the catch. Because I don't eat fast food as often anymore, like I don't know if I'm going to miss it. Like I may not know the McRib is back. I don't drive by a McDonald's ever. Hmm. So like it could be back right now and I would have no idea. I mean, I'll know because I'm going to drive by McDonald's when I go home from this recording. And if the McRib is back, I'm going to buy one. But <laughs> I don't think it is. I haven't heard anything about yeah. it. Usually people like talk about it. They do. Which is really, really weird. I, it's the perfect marketing strategy. Right, just only release it every once in a while and then people talk about it. Yeah, the rumor I heard, and I've never tried to confirm this one way or the other, is that it follows the pork markets. I'm sure. And when pork gets cheap, they make the McRib again. Which, I guess, but it's not like they're using the expensive parts of pork anyway. Hey, you run real tight profit margins in an operation like that. No, you don't. <laughs> You're printing money. Someone posted posted once on the internet uh, the cost list for the ingredients at McDonald's. It's, Fractions of a penny. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's dirt cheap. Yeah, which is fine. I'm gonna eat it anyway. It's delicious. That's the thing. Is like if you go to a good McDonald's mm -hmm. at a good time. Man, a quarter pounder with cheese is great. So good. It tastes so good. Yeah, like they figured it out over literally like billions of repetitions yeah. how to make something that's really delicious. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, so am I. And the best thing is, this is my favorite joke about McDonald's. The great thing about McDonald's is you can go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger that tastes like every other cheeseburger you've ever had at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a good cheeseburger. <laughs> it's a pretty good cheeseburger, yeah. It's like every time it's like, yeah, I want that cheeseburger that I've eaten a hundred times before. I want that exact experience again. Thank you. Yep. That's, and that also works internationally. Yeah. yeah like you, I, I went to a McDonald's in Prague when I was in Prague and ate a cheeseburger and tasted like every other cheeseburger I've ever had, which was extra fantastic because I was not in the same country. And so I missed like things like McDonald's. Right. And, and you can so, get it. And I can just go to McDonald's and eat that cheeseburger. That is like, honestly, like, so like, the the single individual hamburger that is produced that you eat is like not a not a great feat it's not a huge accomplishment it's not an art it's mm -mm. it's just a it's a cheap 10 cent hamburger or yeah. whatever but the system that is capable of producing that identically from 10 years ago in yeah. Ohio every hamburger to, tastes exactly the same to the one in Prague it's the same every time that it has there. been forever that is like a that is an accomplishment like no other yeah the quality control the supply chain deal. management, the 
the training that goes in, like it's a beautiful thing that yeah. creates that. Process. And that's true of most fast food. Like every Wendy's cheeseburger I've had tastes the same too. Yeah. But and that's why the crave the cyclical cravings work. Yeah, because I go like I go I need two junior bacon cheeseburgers right now, and yeah. I go and it's exactly the same two JBCs that mm-hmm. I had six months ago. I'm more of a double stack fan. Gotta get that bacon. But the double stack is the perfect pocket burger. <laughs> oh, we've talked about the pocket we have, burger. We have. Why is it better than the JBC? Because it's so got here's two patties? A, here's the thing I've realized um, that I think broke the internet. My head, fast food, broke something. Um, bacon on burgers isn't very good most of the time. Hmm. Most bacon on most burgers is bad. I mean, like it's not good bacon because it's not. It's not like it's not good beef. Yeah, but like you, you don't. I, think- the, I don't get a better experience for paying a dollar more or a dollar fifty more to put bacon on my burger. It is not a better burger because I spent more on that bacon. No, but the JBC is the same price as the double stack. Well, the double stack's got two patties. I'd rather have two patties over lackluster bacon. See, I'd rather have a diff. I'd rather have some more variety than just a repetition. But it's more meat and it's better, and the bacon doesn't make it better. I think it does. That's good. You and everybody else thinks that it does. (laughs) But every time I like, I went to Five Guys recently, which great burger, like fantastic burger. Yeah, Uh, and the last couple times I've gone to Five Guys, I haven't gotten the bacon on my cheeseburger. I've just gotten a cheeseburger. Yeah. Because uh, I had that realization, like the bacon on a cheeseburger, no matter, even if it's a Five Guys cheeseburger, is not very good bacon. It's usually overcooked. It's super crunchy. I don't like super crunchy bacon. Mm. Bacon should be chewy. It's meat. It should chew like meat. <laughs> it's not a potato chip. It's not a potato chip. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, and went to Five Guys this past weekend, and I put bacon on it. I was like, I'm you a bacon cheeseburger. And I was like, yeah, this didn't add anything to it. I'm going to stick to not putting bacon on my cheeseburgers. I think it's valuable in a something like a Wendy's burger where it's very cheap. Mm-hmm. And instead of two two patties of the cheapest possible beef that the market can buy. Yeah. I would rather, like, I want one patty of that and then one, and then like a slice of bacon just to add some variety and yeah. interest. Whereas, like, I can see, like, the bacon mm-hmm. the bacon out of Five Guys has the potential to be better, but the beef is so much better that it doesn't, it stands alone much better yeah. than, it, than it does on a Wendy's burger. I'm going to cut against my entire argument mm-hmm. in just a moment by saying that I usually order the Baconator at Wendy's. See, I don't get the Baconator. It's too, it's too much. It's a lot. I had a friend in college who would order a quadruple Baconator back when you'd let, they would let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> they would let you do it. Well, because it used to be you would get a baconator and you choose one, two, or three patties. You could just ask for four. And he would just ask for four. He would just <laughs> say, I'm going to do the three patty baconator with an extra patty. <laughs> uh, and they would make it for him. And now, like, there's one baconator and it's two patties. And there's the junior baconator or son of baconator or whatever it right. is, which is a smaller patty closer to the JBC size. Um, but for some reason, and so. Having not had a JBC from Wendy's, but having had the Baconator, the bacon on the Baconator is good bacon because it is not overcooked and crispy. It tastes like meat. Mm-hmm. And so if it's the same bacon on the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger, I'll let you have one. It's pretty good. But again, if I'm going to spend that, I'd rather have a double stack. All right. That's fine. Yeah. It, it's still like, 
I still think about the miracle that you can make a hamburger identical and make a men like yes that the repetition yeah. and the consistency but you can make a profit on selling it to me for 99 cents <laughs> yeah that's pretty gross the more extreme version of that is like the soft taco from taco bell yeah which i think is like 69 cents or I think something it's like 12 cents <laughs> but like like they make a profit on mm-hmm. that i'm more of a burrito fan have you ever been to a Taco Bueno? No. Okay. What's that? It's like a Taco Bell, but better. Okay. I would put it between Taco Bell and Taco Cabana. Have you been to a Taco Cabana? Cabana? I haven't. It's better than Taco Bell. Right. Um, they also make their tortillas in-house. Right. So it's like, it's fast food Mexican, but it's good fast food Mexican. Someone's actually like cooking real things. Yes. Inside the restaurant. Yeah. They're not pouring things out of bags. Yeah. Or, or guns. For like, <laughs> the, ta- the Taco Bell tortillas come out of guns, right? I'm, I'm sure <laughs> they come out of those squeezy cock guns. <laughs> I, I hate, I hate when, so, okay, I got the Crunchwrap Supreme. And yeah. you, normally at a Taco Bell, you can watch them make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take, they to take make those, it extra appetizing. They take those cock guns. Yeah. And like, squirt, like squirt. the meat comes out and the, but when they uh when they squirt the sour cream onto it like it looks like a cock gun gun, like it looks like they're cocking they're just squirting (laughs) cock into my yes into my crunchwrap supreme because it's this white yeah that's so i i read something and i don't know how true it is because i read it on the internet but i read the reason for those cock guns is a food safety thing i'm sure because you can just put the tube of goop or meat or whatever into those guns (laughs) i think they call all of it goop yeah and never have to brown goop yellow goop and never have to touch it right which is a food safety thing like that's how you avoid contamination right like in case your employees forgot to wash their hands it's okay (laughs) they never touch the food they have those crinkly gloves on anyway like but think about it like how many times have you heard about like food poisoning scares at taco bell right like as opposed to Chipotle, the fancy one, or Jack in the Box, which, which killed people back in the nineties. <laughs> right, they're touching food left and right. Yeah, I'm watching them cut up the meat at the yeah. Chipotle. Yeah, I want everything that I eat at a restaurant to come out of a gun. Yeah, <laughs> it's clearly safer. You know what's really funny? McDouble. That's what it's called. Um, the as you go through the spectrum of food fanciness yeah. from Taco Bell where everything comes out of guns <laughs> to Chipotle where like they're, they're they're doing things by hand yeah you're but, fast casuals but they're almost doing it by hand for show yeah. to like try to be more yeah. legitimate than they are and then you just get like your regular restaurants yeah. where they just like cook things normally yeah there's a line cook in the back just making everything right and then you get like your fancy restaurants yeah. where they like pretend everything's all like artisanal and fancy. Mm-hmm. And then you get your like crazy fancy like gastronomy extravaganzas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're back to things coming out of guns. <laughs> <laughs> it's full circle. Right? Because they got their like creams and foams. Yeah, that's, and, that's true. And it's all coming out of guns again. Yeah. <laughs> 
I want to open a restaurant called Gun Food, and they serve Crunchwrap Supremes and like foam. <laughs> I want a Crunchwrap Supreme, and then I want someone to squirt a foam that tastes like a Crunchwrap Supreme into my mouth with a gun. <laughs> This is our Crunchwrap Supreme foam. <laughs> like, a, like a waiter with like a fancy cock gun yeah. approaches your table and is like, open wide. <laughs> so light and airy. <laughs> well, I'm glad we found a way to do 30 minutes about fast food after our school shooting talk. Yeah, that was, that was good. But we still ended on guns. <laughs> <laughs>